All right, ladies and gentlemen, yes. Yeah, is there, you know, there's a special blessing to say when we finish the Torah. Is there a special blessing when we start it? That's a great question. Is there a special blessing that we say when we start learning Torah? The answer is yes. There's a blessing that we recite every morning um, about uh, Torah study. So that is, it's important to actually say that blessing before we study Torah. It's basically an acknowledgement that Hashem gave us the Torah. But as, as far as one specifically for starting the Torah from the beginning, I don't know. I don't know of a specific uh, blessing for that. It's kind of like we're back. We're back and better than ever. Well, because it never really ended, right? I mean, it's, it's true. It's like a circle. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to jump in. We have a lot to cover. We have a lot to cover since we have two days, today and tomorrow, to cover an entire Torah portion, which is the beginning and a huge Torah portion, voracious. So there is there's not enough time to cover everything that we would want to cover. So we're just going to do our best. Okay, so let's, uh, let's do our best. I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump in and let's get busy. Torah reading for Bereshis, Genesis chapter 1. This is it. This is the beginning. By the way, cue up joke number one. Where is the first mention of baseball in the Torah? Right here. It says, in the big inning, the big inning. Yes, that just happened, friends. Oh, very cute. Yes, yeah, I don't know about cute. Okay, thank you for being kind. Here we go. The Torah says, In the beginning of God's creation of the heavens and the earth. Now, it's interesting to note here is, this translation follows Rashi. Typically, the translation is, In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. But here, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit modified. It says, In the beginning of God's creation of the heavens and the earth, in other words, it's kind of like a rolling narrative. Not in the beginning God created. In the beginning, in the beginning God created. In the beginning there was just God. It's in the beginning of God's creation that the rest of the narrative unfolds. And what's the narrative? Verse number two. Now the earth was astonishingly empty. Right? And darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. This has so many layers of meaning. The commentaries, Rashi, the uh, other commentaries, the mystical commentaries, there's so much on these verses that I would love to share with you. But again, in the interest of time, I'm going to be very selective about what I share with you for this week because we only have two days and we have a massive portion to get through. So one of the ideas of the earth being astonishingly empty and darkness is the, is the notion, is the idea that darkness always precedes light. That you always have a void before you have a presence. In other words, you always have the challenge before the breakthrough. The darkness before the light. That's the way it works. Even in God's creation, it's not like God creates poof creation. It's first there's emptiness and darkness and then... Verse number three, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Does that make sense? So, yeah, tohu vavo, yes. That is right here in the Hebrew. Tohu vavo means astonishingly, astonishingly empty, according to this translation. Many translations, but if you pick this one, that's what you got. Now, another idea that I want to mention, a mystical, Kabbalistic idea, the Arizal talks about this, 
The word merachefes, which means hovering. The English is hovering, the Hebrew is merachefes. Um, according to the Arizal, according to Kabbalah, this alludes to the shattering of the vessels. So if you've studied Kabbalah with me before, you've probably encountered this notion of the shattering of the vessels, where God creates a world called Tohu, the world of chaos and emptiness. And that is a prod, and then that world shatters. There's a shattering of the blessing. There's a, sh- sorry, a shattering of the vessels, where that reality, that realm, just completely disintegrates and, and, and breaks, breaks apart. Too much light, too little vessel. And that's in there, 288 sparks of divine energy that fall because of that shattering of the vessels. And that's alluded to in the word merachefes, rapach, the three letters in the middle of that word, reish ches pei, the numerical value of that is 288. And the first letter and the last letter spell the word meis, which means die. So the 288 sparks died, so to speak, or they didn't die, but they fell with the shattering of the vessels, and that constitutes, according to Kabbalah, the purpose of life, which is to elevate the sparks, to collect the fragments of light, of divine light, that are scattered throughout creation, throughout our existence. So, in, 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 in a modern terminology, our world is tikkun olam, our purpose in this world is tikkun olam, to fix the world, to repair the world, to gather the shattered pieces, to gather the, um, the broken vessels, to gather the sparks of light, that exist all over the place, throughout the world, in every interaction, everything that we do, and to reconnect it back with its purpose. And that means simply living a life that is connected to spirituality as opposed to disconnected. Let's continue with verse number four. And God saw the light that it was good, and God separated between the light and between the darkness. This is a message for us in life. There's light, there's darkness, there's good, there's evil. Make sure to make that separation. Don't blur the lines. Next, again, we're going through this quickly, at least somewhat quickly. Verse 5, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So when it's light, that's what we call day. And when it's night, sorry, and when, sorry, light is day, and darkness is night. And that concluded day one. It was evening, and it was morning, one day. So that was the conclusion of day one. Verse number 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse, in the midst of the water, and let it be a separation between water and water. Now, this expanse is what we call the heavens, as we'll see soon. And God made the expanse, and it separated between the water that was below the expanse and the water that was above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. I... I kind of leaked that information a moment ago. But yeah, that expanse, that rakia, that expanse, is what we call heaven. So that heaven basically separates between higher waters and lower waters. And it was evening, and it was morning, the second day. Now notice day two, it doesn't say that it was good, that God saw that it was good. Day one, it says God saw the light that it was good. Notice that day two, it just says that God did the separation of the waters. God called the expanse heaven. And that was it. That was second day. Day two, that's what God did. He created, separated the waters and created this heaven. Okay, great, but it's not good. It's not, Torah does not call it good. And the sages tell us why not. Because day two was a day of separation. And separation is painful even when it is purposeful and necessary, etc. 
So yes, there had to be a separation between the higher, there was a one mass of waters. And in order to sustain life, there had to be a separation of the waters, creating lower waters, oceans, lakes, whatever, and, and upper waters, atmospheric waters, whatever that is, atmospheric moisture. There had to be a separation between those two realms of water. Yet, even though it served a purpose, and it served a necessary purpose, and ultimately a good purpose, the reality is that on day two, which is the day of separation, it's not good. It's not, it's, it's pain, pain, separation is painful. We, God does not call it good. Let's continue. Verse, uh, verse number nine. And God said, this is now day three. And God said, let the water that is beneath the heavens, right, the lower waters, gather into one place and let the dry land appear. Because at that point, the water was covering the entire earth. So let the lower waters gather into specific oceans and lakes and rivers and allow dry land to appear in the other places. And it was so. That, that was verse number nine. And God called the dry land earth. There you go. And the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Oh, now it's good again. You see? Now we have land and, and oceans and seas, etc. Now it's good. Verse 11. And God said. He says it twice. One second, not yet. So yeah, yeah, but we only did the first one for day three. So far, we have one instance of good. We're going to get there soon. And God said, this is still day three. God said, let the earth, now that there's earth, let's let the earth do its thing. So let the earth sprout vegetation, seed yielding herbs and fruit trees, producing fruit according to its kind in which its seed is found on the earth. That's what God said, and it was so. So basically, God says, let the earth sprout vegetation, including trees that have fruit, that have seeds, that can create more trees. Well, we know how this works, right? And thus, and, and, and thus the uh, cycle of life continues, and that's what happened. Verse 12, and the earth gave forth vegetation, seed yielding herbs according to its kind, and trees producing fruit, in which its seed is found according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So we have two mentions of good, as Ray just mentioned, on day number three. It was good when there was dry land, and it was good when the dry land yielded the vegetation. It was, it was good, it was good. So our sages tell us that there, day one is good. Day two doesn't say that it's good. Day three, it's two times good. So on day three, we compensate almost for the missing good on day two with a double measure of good on day three. Nonetheless, as I mentioned before, day two itself, even though it's necessary, but separation itself is painful. Separation itself is painful. And we have to know that it's painful, even if it yields something, something beneficial. And this is a message in life also. It's like we have to give ourselves time to feel the pain. And this is true in, in any area of life. Like even when we know that something is ultimately for a good purpose, if we try to... If we try to um, uh, race through that, or if we try to, to hurry to speed that up, then the process won't be effective to, to, to lead to that benefit. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Right? Sometimes the so challenge leads to something positive, but that's because it was a challenge. If you take away the challenge, then it's not necessarily going to lead to the positive thing. So day two has to feel painful. Day two can't be good, and that leads to double good on day three. Okay, again, hope that made sense. Let's continue with verse number 13. And it was evening and it was morning, a third day. Okay, yeah, okay, so that wraps up day three. Verse 14. 
And God said, let there be luminaries. Here we go. Let's get some heavenly bodies that, that illuminate the world. Let there be luminaries in the expanse of the heavens to separate between the day and between the night. And they shall be for signs and for appointed seasons and for days and for years. In other words, we will count the calendar and the seasons will be marked by these luminaries. And they shall be for luminaries in the expanse of the heavens to shed light upon the earth. And it was so. Well, what are these luminaries? Let's go verse 16. And God made the two great luminaries. The great luminary to rule the day. That's the sun. And the lesser luminary to rule the night. And the stars. So that we have the, the sun and the moon and the stars. There we go. By the way, you may have noticed, I mentioned this last time we did this, but it's always important to mention. Initially, there are two great luminaries. And then it specifies the great luminary by day and the lesser luminary by night. Turns out there's not two great luminaries. There's one great luminary and one lesser luminary. So why does it call them two great luminaries? It doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction. The Talmud says, famously, that initially they were two great luminaries. The sun and the moon were equal, equally bright. Upon which the moon complained to God and said to God, what, you're going to have two, two kings rule the same kingdom? It's not going to work. So God says, good point, make yourself smaller, and thus the moon becomes less. It doesn't, it, doesn't share, uh, it doesn't emanate its own light. It doesn't illuminate the world on its own. It merely reflects the sun's, um, the sun's light, and that's the way it is. Now, you might ask, the, the moon pointed out something, something, uh, you know, something that made sense. The moon gets punished. This is discussed many, in many books, many commentaries. We've done many classes on this. We don't have time to get into it today, but know that the topic is well, is well trodden. Let's continue with verse number 17. And God placed them, these two luminaries, in the expanse of the heavens to shed light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate between the light and between the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Once again, it's good. And it was evening, it was morning, a fourth day. So this, is, this wraps up day four. Let's continue with day five. And God said, yeah. In my Rashi, it says that uh, the two lights were created equal in size. Yeah. And the moon was reduced in size because it complained. Correct. And it was possible for two kings to use the same crown. Right. Yes. Yes. There you go. The moon speaks up. Boom. Out, out she goes, or he goes, or it goes. All right. Let's continue with verse number 20. And God said, let the, let the waters swarm a swarming of living creatures. In other words, the waters should have life in it. And let fowl fly over the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So we have now fish and birds. And God created, ooh, I love verse 21. And God created the great sea monsters. Yeah. Remember that Loch Ness uh, situation? I'm kidding. But God created some sort of sea, great sea monsters and every living creature that crawls with which the water swarmed according to their kind and every winged fowl according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Okay, so now we have created, this is, this is day five. So day five we have the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and God gives them a special blessing. Take a look at verse 22. And God blessed them, saying, this is the first time we find this blessing, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas 
and let the fowl multiply upon the earth. So here we have this commandment. Um, well, it's a blessing, but it sounds like a command also, which is continue to repopulate the earth with your progeny, right? Fish and the birds, everyone should have more fish and more birds. Let's continue, verse 23, and it was evening, it was morning, a fifth day. Um, sorry? It seems a little paradoxical. Which part? Well, about be fruitful and multiply. Because, this, because about the great sea giants, Rashi says there was a male and a female created, but he killed the female and salted it away for the righteous. That's what Rashi says. For yeah, the future. That's... If they were to reproduce and multiply, the world would not last in the face in the face of them. Yeah. So in other words, he first kills kills them off so they won't be fruitful and multiply, but the others he says go to it. Yeah, for the rest, for those that don't endanger um, life itself, <laughs> there's a uh, there's the call to be fruitful and multiply. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's probably good that we don't have giant sea monsters, you know, taking over. That sounds like a plot for a uh, a summer thriller flick. Yeah, <laughs> the attack of the giant sea monsters. Yes, Donna. Verse 23, it was evening and it was morning. Is that how we get the holidays to start on the evening before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All the days actually have that same refrain. It was evening, it was morning, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. Every yeah. day starts in the evening then. Correct. The day begins at night. Go figure. <laughs> the Jewish day begins at nightfall. It's a thing. Um, I mean, look, even in, in, even in the secular counting, the day begins at midnight, which is the middle of the night. So doesn't begin at day. It's not like the, the new calendar date begins at 6 a.m. It's not how it works. It begins at midnight, but Jewish day begins at nightfall, not randomly middle of the night. It begins with nightfall, which is why Shabbat begins in the evening, the holidays begin in the evening, etc. Okay, good. Uh, verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. Okay, so this is now day six, just, just FYI. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. The earth brought forth before vegetation. Now it's going to bring forth living creatures according to their kind. Cattle and creeping things and the beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. You know, according to its kind means different species. It's not just going to be one thing called animal. It's going to be different types. Every animal according to its kind. Okay. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind, and the cattle according to their kind, and all the creeping things of the ground according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. It's good. And God said, uh-oh, now we get in, not uh-oh in it, mm, but uh-oh in a, now it's going to, now it gets complicated. Because so far, it's all been good. Now God pushes the envelope. And God says, let us make man. In our image, after our likeness, our plural, meaning God and the angels or heaven and earth, whatever the hour is, there's a lot of interpretation on that. But basically God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we see now that human being is not just a product of the earth, a product of the seas, a product of this, that, or the other. But the human being is a divine product, creating the image of God. This is unique language. I'm just pointing out the obvious. We read all the verses up until now. This is the first time, I mean, this is verse 26. We've read a few verses. This is the first time we find this terminology. And they, they, the human being, man, man is not gender specific, nor is it singular. Man means mankind, humankind. 
And they, human beings, shall rule over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the heaven, and over the animals, and over all the earth, and over all the creeping things that creep upon the earth. In other words, human beings shall rule over the rest of all the other stuff that we just talked about in creation. And what does rule mean? Rule could mean, see, we rule for us is a trigger word. It's like, uh-oh, dictator, despot, uh, corruption, blah, blah, blah. Because that's how we've seen it. But this doesn't mean rule in a negative way. It means lead, guide, uplift, elevate in a positive way. So rule means be the one that sets the vision. Or maybe it doesn't set the vision, but helps carry out my vision for this world. Okay, good. So that's the task of the human being. Not just are we creating the image of God. It's not just a benefit that we have. There is a responsibility. I just want to emphasize what I just said. We have the benefit, the fortune, the good fortune of being created in God's image. That's one side of the coin. But the other side of the coin is that that comes with a responsibility. And what's the responsibility? To, to use those gifts appropriately. Let's continue verse 27. And God created man in his image. Again, man is not gender specific here. God created man, a human being, in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The first human being, according to the commentary, was, was created, male and female, two beings, essentially, back-to-back, one facing one way, facing the other way. Again, back-to-back, imagine two people kind of fused together, their backs, and both male and female. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful. Once again, the same blessing slash charge that he gave to the other forms of living creatures, God says to, to the human beings, or human being, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it means, again, not in a negative way, in a positive way. And rule over, subdue the materialism and bring out its best. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the sky and over all the beasts that, that tread upon the earth. The human being, again, is given an incredible gift and an incredible responsibility. And God said, verse 29, Behold, I have given you, human being, every seed-bearing herb which is upon the surface of the entire earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit. It, all, all the plants and all the vegetation, all the trees, it will be yours for food. Adam and Eve were vegetarians. They were told to eat from the, the, the vegetation, that which grows upon the earth. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the fowl of the heavens and to everything that moves upon the earth. In other words, all other forms of life, animals and birds and creepy crawly things in which there's living spirit. Everything that has a living spirit, every green herb to eat, they're also permitted and charged to eat all green herbs. In other words, vegetation was available for all forms of living creatures to eat. I just want to specify, sorry, or clarify what that means. Living creatures, nefesh chaya, living creatures mean creatures that have demonstrable signs of life. In other words, animals, birds, creepy crawly things, human beings, anything that moves 
we call nefesh chaya uh, uh, a, a, an animate spirit, a spirit that is animated, that moves around. All animate life is permitted to eat vegetation. Now, are trees alive? 100%. Do trees eat trees? No, trees are not cannibals. That's weird. Trees don't eat trees. They grow, they have their own way of growing, right? They're, they're, they grow with water and soil and light and all that stuff. And likewise, um, rocks and minerals, inanimate life, right? These, these forms of life are also alive and they have a soul, but they don't have an, a, a type of a life that we would call animate life, right? That requires eating to survive. If you see a rock eating, a bla- eating some grass, then you gotta get, you gotta check that out. You gotta just get, something's gotta get checked out because that doesn't make any sense, right? You rub your eyes a little bit, put on new glasses, get something else going on, make, step away from the rock, figure out what's going on. Rocks don't eat, trees don't eat in the conventional sense, but all other life eats. And God is saying that all life that is animate, the animals, the birds, the creepy crawly things, and human beings are permitted to eat vegetation. Let's continue. Verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Oh, not just good. It was very good. And it was evening, it was morning, the sixth day. By the way, notice no mention of any sin. No mention of the forbidden fruit. None none of that. In chapter 1 of Genesis, all is good. And it even closes out day 6 with uh, no drama. This is like the no drama version of creation. Let's continue Genesis chapter 2. Now the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. Host means like the heavenly uh, uh, luminaries. All is good. And God completed on the seventh day his work that he did, and he abstained on the seventh day from all his work that he did. Now, it says he completed on the seventh day, or he abstained. Well, did he work, or did he not work? Well, he finished right before the seventh day. He worked right up to that line of day seven, not on it, so he abstained on it, but he completed it on that day. In other words, it was complete. As soon as that day seven came in, it was complete. Not a moment earlier, not a moment later. That's how, God, that's how precise God is. We need 18 minutes before sunset. That's what we take in Shabbat. We light the candles. 18 minutes, we need a, we need a bit of a buffer. God can go up until the last second. Boom. Verse, <laughs> verse number three. And God blessed the seventh day and he hallowed it. For thereon, hallowed it means he made it holy. For thereon he abstained from all his work that God created to do. So right in the beginning, we have this mention of Shabbat, of day seven, being a holy day. Now you might just say, well, maybe it's that original day seven. No, it means he hallowed it. He made it holy for all time. Every seven days is a reenactment of that original day. Now, look, I said at the beginning, at the top of the hour-ish, at the top of the class hour, that we have a lot to cover in two days. So we're moving through this quickly. So we're not, I'm not doing a deep dive. Today, this, this week, you know, it is what it is, time constraints. We won't be able to do a deep dive into all of the all of the stuff. But I want to give you enough that the narrative, number one, makes sense, first and foremost. And number two, selected insights here and there. So let's continue Genesis chapter 2, verse number 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In other words, these are, these are the stories. On the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, verse 5. Now, no tree of the field was yet on the earth. Originally, 
Trees weren't there. Neither did any herb of the field yet grow, because the Lord God had not brought rain upon the earth. And there was no man to work the soil. So initially, we didn't have trees. There wasn't rain. So what happened? So what happened? Verse number six. And a mist ascended from the earth and watered the entire surface of the ground. Mm. Sounds like the um, evaporation and precipitation. Sounds like uh, we got some rain going on over here. Well, that's good. And the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the soul of life. And man became a living soul. So now we get some more details. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we get some more specifics that we may have somewhat perhaps glossed over in chapter 1. So number one, we learn about the, the, the vegetation, that it wasn't, didn't just pop up. It needed some sort of rain that was born of mist that ascended and then descended. Okay. Um, and then we're also learning some more details about the creation of the human being. That the human being was created dust from the ground. And then God breathed into his nostrils the soul of life and man became a living soul. So we have this, the body is a corporeal item. It's a physical, it's a mundane, materialistic clay, earthen type of thing. That's the body. And the soul, divine soul, is breathed into the nostrils. By the way, that's why the nose, the sense of smell, is considered to be the, the most spiritual smell because it's the conduit of life. It's where life initially goes in, um, which is why in the Havdalah, if you're familiar with the, the Saturday night Havdalah, ceremony that officially concludes, uh, marks the conclusion of Shabbat and the entrance into the new week ahead, we say blessings on various senses. We drink wine. We look at fire, at light from fire, and we smell spices, sweet smelling spices. We want it, first of all, on a simple level, we want to get all of our senses invigorated with a uh, spirituality and purpose. But on another level, um, there is this idea that the nose specifically, we need to nurture the nose with positive sense, with holy sense. Okay, let's continue verse number eight. Okay, yes. Earlier, God created man, and here it says he formed man. Yes. Why twice? Good. So if you notice in the original, um, in the original... It's Vayivra and Vayitzer. If I'm not mistaken, it's Vayivra created, and now it's Vayitzer formed, which corresponds to two dimensions of the spirit, two types yeah. of, of existence. There's Bria and Yitzira. So the mystics discuss this. I mean, you're, you're noticing something very important, the difference between Bria and Yitzira. There's four spiritual realms, Atzilut, Emanation, Bria, Creation, Yitzira, Formation, Asiya, Action, so we have two different terms, two different forms. It ties into the two different narratives of the human being, which reflect the, this, this point. Is the human being created in the image of God, or are we formed dust of the earth? Those are two options, right? When we look at ourselves, are we image or dust? That's the question. That's a question that we have to answer for ourselves. There are two visions of the human being, two visions of Adam and Eve, two visions in the Torah, chapter one and chapter two. In chapter one, 
the vision is image of God. In chapter 2, the vision is dust from the earth. The question is, which narrative will we choose? Chapter 1 or chapter 2? In chapter 1, as I mentioned, there's no drama. In chapter 2, we're about to hit the sin of the tree of knowledge. So, the question is, how do we identify? That's the big question in 2021, right? How do we identify? Do Do we identify as divine creatures or as earthly creatures? We have both. We have a body and a soul. The question is, who are you? Who am I? Who do I identify as? Vayivra is a higher level. Vayitzar is a lower level. Bria is higher than Yitzira. Do I identify myself as a divine creature or as an earthly creature? How I define myself will help dictate the actions that follow. Okay, that's me answering in short. I hope that makes sense. Let's continue with the rest of the dramatic narrative in chapter 2 when things get dramatic. And the Lord, verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden from the east, and he placed there the man whom he had formed. And the Lord God caused to sprout from the ground every tree, pleasant to see and good to eat, and the tree of life. Here we go. Tree of life in in the midst of the garden, in the center of the garden. And there was also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, look at this. There's the tree of life. It's right there. And then there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let's continue. We're going to get back to that point in a second. And a river. It's like painting the scene of the garden. For all our artists out there, if you want to know how to, how to paint it, here we go. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it separated and became four heads. Kind of four head rivers. The name of one is Pishon. That is the one that encompasses all the land of Chavila where there is gold. All right, for all you gold diggers out there, now you know where to go. And, and the gold of that land is good. I didn't know there was gold that wasn't good, but nonetheless, this gold is the good gold. There is the crystal and the onyx stone. Donna, you got to get on this. We need a gold, crystal, and onyx <laughs> Eden uh, uh, paradise uh, kit. All right, let's continue. Huh? You're on it. Okay. Next, 13. And the name of the second river, right? There were four rivers. The name of the second river is Gihon. That is the one that encompasses all the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, known in the Hebrew as Chideka. That is the one that flows to the east of Assyria. And the fourth river, it, that is the Euphrates, the Prus, the Euphrates River. Okay, now that we've got the scene all kind of specked out over here, let's get back to our story with Adam and Eve and the trees, because we know this will not end well. Now the Lord God took the man and he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. Very specific guidelines of what, he, what they were supposed to do. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Beteavon, enjoy the trees, enjoy the fruit. However, verse 17, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For on the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die, or at the very least, death will begin to take hold on the day that you eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord said, it is not good that man is alone, or, as I explained it, that the human being is stuck, fused together back to back. I shall make him a helpmate opposite him. And the Lord God formed from the earth every beast of the field and every fowl of the heavens, and he brought it to man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called each living thing, that was its name. 
Torah tells us that Adam named all the animals. Kabbalah explains that this represents the greatness of Adam. He could see the soul of every living creature and granted its appropriate name because a name is a conduit of the soul energy of that living creature. Let's continue with chapter 2, reading number 3. And man named all the cattle and all the fowl of the heavens and all the beasts of the field, but for man he did not find a helpmate opposite him. Maybe he was interviewing. Hey, you look nice. Nah, you're just a cow. Yeah, you look... Ah, it's a giraffe. Hey, no, not, uh, just, uh, you know, uh, a lion. Wasn't, uh, wasn't a, no appropriate mate. He didn't look behind. Okay, let's go. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And he slept. And he took one of his sides and closed the flesh in its place. And the Lord God built the side that he had taken from man into a woman. And he brought her to man. And man said, this time it is now I finally found the one who is for me. This time it is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called Isha, woman, because this one was taken from Ish, man. Ish is man. Isha is woman. It's the same. It's very close. Ish, Isha. Ish is man. Isha is woman because they come from essentially the same place. Therefore, a man shall leave his father. Now, the Torah gives like life advice here. Just like we're going to interrupt this narrative to give you like life advice. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And this kind of, you know, tells us the nature of, of life and of uh, generations and how life moves on. Now, well, hold on one second. Let me just finish this. Verse 25. Now they were both naked, the man and his wife, but they were not ashamed. This will become a very intriguing clue as to the nature of reality pre-sin, where they were so innocent, they had no idea that there was even a thing to cover up. Mark, jump in. I have to share this. In the Chumash, the Torah says, this time it is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And Rashi says this time teaches us that Adam had relations with every species of animal and beast, but his man was not... But his mind was not cooled through them. There you go. Right. Mark, here's the thing. I can always rely on you to bring up the, uh, the, uh, the good stuff. I'm kidding. Yes, I, I alluded to that when I said that Adam interviewed all of, the, all of the animals. I was saying it like, you know, like we learned it when we were kids. That Adam welcomed all the animals and said, oh, you're not for me, you're not for me. Am I getting down into all the details of how, what that interview process looked like? No. But suffice to say that uh, they weren't appropriate for him, and that was it. Okay, next. <laughs> all right. That's it. We call this in, in scientific methodology trial and error. Tech, now, Genesis chapter 3. All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 3. The narrative continues. Now, the serpent. Now we got a serpent. Now, first of all, we've never been introduced to the serpent before. So suddenly now, we have a serpent that's here. Now, it's called the serpent, because, like, I guess we need to get to know this guy. Now, the serpent was very cunning, was cunning, more than all the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. So this serpent was up to no good. And it said to the woman, did God indeed say you shall not eat any of the trees of the garden? So, first of all, his serpent, what a chacham, what a, what a, what a, 
Okay, very annoying, but, but also a bit clever. So the first, the first statement is, oh, I heard, I just read on TMZ, that God said that you're not allowed to have any of the trees of the field. Right, now, is that true or not? Thumbs up, true, thumbs down, if not true. Not true. Not true. God said you could have all the trees with one exception. So the, the snake, it's not like he misheard. The snake is trying to cause, the serpent's trying to cause problems. So the serpent says, oh, by the way, I heard that you can't have any of these delicious fruits. This is basically a way to get her in conversation. Okay? And the woman said to the serpent, she feels like at least she should educate this poor serpent that doesn't know. No, 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 no. Let me clarify. That means clarify in uh, Yiddish. Of the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. Hold on, I'm getting some more information. What is this? It's not, it was Yeah. Okay. By the way, Mark. To clarify, I got I got some I got my my IT team investigation investigative team on this on the case. The Sifse Chachamim explains the commentary on Rashi that it's not actually that he was intimate with the creatures; it's only using language. Anyway, I know you have a, a book on Rashi, but I'm saying that's not the only commentary on Rashi. That's out there. There is one that explains that it didn't actually happen in a literal fashion. So, my uh, my euphemisms are can still are still uh, perhaps still standing based on this other commentary. Okay, let's continue back to our narrative with the serpent. So the serpent says, "So I heard you can't eat any of this stuff," and she says, "No, no, 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 no." Um, uh, the woman said, "No, of the fruits of the trees of the garden we may eat." No, you got it wrong. We are allowed to eat. But of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God said, in other words, that one tree, God says you shall not eat of it and you shall not touch it lest you die. So now she adds on something extra. Not just we're not supposed to eat that one tree, but we're not even supposed to touch it. Now, where did she get that from? Some say she made it up. Some say that Adam made it up and told her to be extra cautious, to create a fence around the tree almost. Either way, as we'll see, it got, uh, it got them into trouble because as the Medrash says, the serpent pushes her into the tree. She bumps into it and she doesn't die. And then at that point, the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, no, that's uh, fake news. You will surely not die. Whatever information you got from God is not true. You're not going to die. For God knows. You, you, know, you, know why, you know why God told you not to eat the tree? For God knows that on the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened. Oh, and you'll be like angels knowing good and evil. Look at that. God doesn't want competition. God wants to keep, God wants to keep you down. God wants you to um, keep you downtrodden and, and ignorant and uh, unlettered and unlearned. God wants to keep you, right, in a, in a, in a, in a lower position than him and the angels. That's why he told you, you're not going to die, God is, God is feeling threatened by you, and he wants to keep you down. And the woman saw, so now this snake, I mean, come on, this serpent? He, l- listen, bad dude did a really great job of this whole, whole situation. Let's just be honest here. He did a really great job in, uh, in selling it to her, right? Number one, oh, I heard you can't eat any of it. No, 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 I can't. So already she's defensive, right? Starts her off on a defensive, uh, defensive posture. 
makes up stories. Anyway, all right, you're all with me here. Let's continue, verse 6. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes. It looked good, it looked tasty. And the tree was desirable to make one wise. Right, again, the wisdom. So she took of its fruit, she ate, and she ate, and she also gave her husband, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So now we have, they all ate, and that's it. And the eyes of both of them were opened. Indeed, their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So in contrast to that verse before that says that they didn't realize that they were naked, now they know. According to Kabbalah, which we had a whole course last year, if you recall, the JLI course last year was called Secrets of the Bible. We delved deeply into the story. The crux of the matter is that essentially, prior to the sin, they were just um, completely subsumed within divine consciousness. They didn't have their own self-consciousness. They weren't aware of self. They were just aware of source. Now they ate the tree. They had an experience. They had a self-awareness experience. Now they know who they are as distinct from God. They can picture themselves as distinct and now they're self-aware and now shame and embarrassment can come in. Now they realize their disconnection from pure source and now they know that they're naked. And they sewed fig leaves and made themselves girdles. Basically, they put on some clothes to cover themselves. Verse 8 Yeah, here's the aftermath of the sin. And they heard the voice of the Lord going in the garden to the direction of the sun. And the man and his wife hid from before the Lord God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Good luck hiding from God, right? And the Lord God called to man and he said to him, Where are you? Yeah, God says, Ayaka, where are you? One word, it's so beautiful in the Hebrew, Ayaka. Where are you? By the way, um, God knew where he was. But the where are you is kind of like, bro, I gave you one job. Like, where have you fallen? Like, where where have you gone? I put you in a good place. I gave you everything that you needed. Like, where are you? Where did you go? Where did you go on me? Where, Where did you? Let's continue verse 10. And he said, Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I am naked, so I hid. And God said back to him, who told you that you're naked? Right? Why why are you so self-aware? Uh-oh. Have you perchance, I added the word perchance, because I like that word. Have you perchance eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, uh, uh, let me point some fingers. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, so I ate. That's what we call not accepting responsibility. The first human being gets called out by God for doing something wrong. And the first words out of his mouth are, she made me do it. It's her fault. Oh, and by the way, it's your fault. Why? Because I didn't even know this person. You gave her to me. But the woman whom you gave to me, it's your, it's your fault. I didn't ask for Eve. I didn't ask for a wife. It was your grand idea. God, if anyone's at fault here for me eating from the tree of knowledge, it's you. But, but you see how, how absurd that sounds? And yet, if we're being honest, we do this all the time. That's our MO as human beings, right? We shift, we blame, we deflect, we shirk responsibility, we blame everyone under the sun except for ourselves. So that's what's going on here. 
So the man says, not my fault. It's her fault. And the Lord God said to the woman. So now God says, all right, well, let's see what she has to say about it. What is, so God said to her, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, oh, you think it's my fault? No, 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 no. The serpent enticed me and I ate. At this point, I, I, if you put yourself in God's shoes, right? You're creating beings in your image, giving them all of the, let's call them advantages, right? All of the abilities, all of the responsibility. And the next thing you know, they're acting like, I mean, if we're going to say, just be frank here, acting like children. I mean, all right, I don't think any, all right. Um, sorry, they were a few hours old, as Nelson says, right? But like they're acting, when I say children, I mean, I'm not putting on children. I'm just saying like, not taking responsibility. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. They did it. They did it. They did it. It's not my fault. Um, anyway, I have a funny story in mind, but we're going to save it for another time when we have more time to share it. Anyway, the bottom line is, God confronts Adam. Adam shifts the blame to Eve. God confronts Eve. Eve shifts the blame to the serpent. And at that point, God is finished. Not going to ask the serpent why the serpent did what he did, because that's the serpent. The question was, the opportunity was given. You see, and here's really one of the main points that I wanted to mention today. You know, life is not about getting things right, everything right all the time, because we're never going to get everything right all the time. The question is, when we get it wrong, what do we do then? That's, the, that's where life is lived. Life is not lived in the space of perfection. Life is lived in that space of imperfection post-mistake. What do we do then? Do we accept responsibility and grow? Or do we deflect responsibility and hide? And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They hid. They were embarrassed, they deflected responsibility, and they blamed others. And there's no growth there. There's no growth there. There's just hiding and deflecting and, and, and shifting and justifying. There's no growth there. Imagine if Adam would have said, you know what? I did it. I'm sorry. I messed up. What do I do next? Who knows what life would have looked like? Would he have been perfect? No. But he would have stood up taking responsibility, and worked on self-improvement. Instead, we get this world where no one's at fault. Anytime anyone does something, it's this fault, that fault. And, and I'm speaking about ourselves also. I mean, right? With just, I humbly posit that we can look within and apply this to our own lives as well. I, I humbly suggest, yeah. It makes me think of overcoming folly. And there's an... I think God also wants us to have the animal spirit so we make the right choice. So Correct. Correct. God wants the opposition. God wants the temptation. And you know what? Does God expect that we're going to get everything right all the time? It would be nice if we did. But I don't believe, I don't, I don't think God really believes that we're going to get it right. But we have a choice. When we get it wrong, what do we do next? That's where life is lived. Life is lived in, in this space after, after we fail. Can we accept responsibility and lift ourselves back up? I've told this story a, a, a number of times. The difference between King Saul and King David, the first and second Jewish kings. King Saul messed up, and he then shirked responsibility. And the monarchy was pulled out from under him. King David did certain things that he was taken to task for by God and the prophets. But after he did that, 
when confronted, he took full responsibility and owned it and embarked on a path of tshuva for the rest of his life. Didn't point any finger, shift the blame, not once. And this becomes the, the difference between, I don't know, whatever cliche you want to insert here, the men and the boys or, you know, uh, adults. And this is, this is what responsibility means. Responsibility means owning up to it, taking responsibility, saying it's not anyone else's fault. It's not anyone, no one else is, uh, it needs to look, it's, it's me. I got to look within and I, and I need to tweak something to correct something for myself. And that's where growth happens. That's the greatest growth can happen after a mistake. But if we, if we shift the blame, then there's no growth. And then it's a wasted opportunity. The sin is a wasted opportunity. If we grow, the sin was a good opportunity. Right? Not that we should go, not that we should do it for that, but the sin now is a stepping stone for something greater if we take responsibility and grow from it. Let's continue. We, uh, that was like probably going to be the longest commentary of today. We're going to wrap it up in just a few minutes, so give me another uh, two or three minutes. Um, let's see the fallout from the sin. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because, verse 14, because you have done this, cursed be you more than all the cattle and more than all the beasts of the field, you shall walk on your belly. Before that, by the way, the serpent was upright. After this, the serpent is slithering. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. It doesn't mean literally it eats dust. It eats that which lives in the dust. Other creatures that crawl on the ground. That's what the snake eats. Let's continue. And I shall place hatred between you and between the woman. I guess women don't like snakes, maybe. And between your seed and between her seed. He will crush your head and you will bite a seal. I guess he means humankind will crush your head and you will bite a seal. In other words, there'll be a natural antagonism between humans and snakes. To the woman, he said, that was fallout for the serpent. What about for the woman, for Eve? To the woman, he said, I shall surely increase your sorrow and your pregnancy. In pain, you shall bear children. And, and to your husband will be your desire and he will rule over you. All right, let's explain what that means. I wish we had more time for this. Um, nonetheless, it means that before the sin, childbirth was, going, was designed to be a very natural process, a very um, smooth process. Just like we read before about the trees, vegetation growing from the earth seamlessly. Life was meant to be born and to, to generate seamlessly. But when you cause a dissonance, between spirit and matter, which is what sin is. Sin is the dissonance between purpose and uh, between God's purpose and our aim between spirit and matter. When you cause a dissonance, then there's also dissonance. There's also some, uh, what's the word? Interference, if you will, between life and the process of life. And so childbirth now will be difficult. It will take time. It will be born of, of, of pain, of, of, of challenge. And the idea here is that there will also be challenge in, in, uh, in, in gender roles. And this is something that is not, we should not look at it as destiny, but rather a challenge that needs to overcome, that, that we need to overcome. Can we look back at human history and say that for a long time and even till today, that there is gender imbalance? I think the answer would be yes. Could, should one say, well, it's predestined by God, that's the way it is? No, this is not a blessing. This is the curse. This is the challenge that we need to push back against. In other words, we're meant to heal the earth. The whole idea of, let me, I, just, I hope what I'm saying is coming across clearly. 
what, what's happening here is there's an imbalance when it comes to life, when it comes to gender, etc. And our goal is tikkun. I said this at the beginning. Our goal is to fix things, bring Mashiach, and bring healing. That means an end to pain, an end to suffering, an end to the dissonance, where spirit and matter are coming together again, and an end to imbalance wherever it takes place and whatever forms it may take place. Remember, never, never um, mistake these verses as blessings. They are curses. They're the negative that we're meant to overcome and change, not that we're meant to celebrate and say, see, this is the way it's supposed to be. That's God forbid to say that. And to man, he said, verse 17, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree, which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed be the ground for your sake. With toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, just like for Eve, also for Adam, the earth will not seamlessly produce life for him, vegetation, if he's out in the field working, if he's out in the field collecting food or whatever it is, it's not going to come easy. It's going to be the product of toil. That's the, rea- that's the curse. The blessing would be to heal that. And it will cause thorns. The earth will cause thorns and thistles to grow for you, and you shall eat the herbs of the field. With the sweat of your face shall you eat bread. In other words, life requires a lot of work until you return to the ground. For you were taken therefrom, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's almost like God is saying the earth will have the last laugh. You're going to try to, all for your lifetime on earth, you'll try to manipulate the earth, but ultimately the earth will cover over you. The earth will triumph. And that's again part of the curse. Let's continue. We're going to do two more verses and close it out. And the man named his wife Eve. Now in Hebrew, it's not Eve, it's Chava, which works with the next part of it. Why Chava? Because she was the mother of all life. Chai. Chava. Aim Kochai, she was the mother of all life. And let's continue. Now God made designer clothing. They made their own makeshift clothing. God and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife shirts of skin. And he dressed them. So they made them for themselves, if you recall. They made for themselves, um, let's see, they made for themselves what type of clothing? Um, Fig Fig leaves, right. They made fig leaves, which is vegetation. And God gave them leather jackets, um, right, shirts of skin. Good, God gave them leather. Adam and Eve were the first bikers. They, wore, they rode a Harley into the, into the garden. I'm kidding, they wore leather as uh, designed by God. So what's the moral of the story? Um, the moral of the story is, number one, don't listen to the serpent. That's number one. Number two, if you find yourself having listened to the serpent, if that's already happened, take responsibility and grow from that experience. Don't duck and hide and shift flame and point in other directions. Own it and grow from it. The growth happens when we own it. All right, my friends, these are the two narratives. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 and beyond. Chapter 1, it's all perfect. There's no mention of sin. There's no mention of trees of knowledge of good and evil. It's six days and it's all good and Shabbos comes and it's all good. There's not one mention of the sin in chapter one of Genesis. Not one mention. I mean, we learned it today. I would say, you can look it up, but we literally just looked it up. Chapter two introduces a new narrative in which there's challenge, there's struggle, there's sin, there's blame, there's shirking responsibility, there's fallout, all that stuff happens. And as I mentioned before, what's the difference? How we look at ourselves. 
When this serpent comes along and says, hey, try this, you'll, you'll like it. Do we have the inner confidence to say, I am a, a, a being that is created in the image of God, and that is not appropriate for me? Or do we look at ourselves as an element of the earth, as a creature of the earth, and say, you know what? This looks good. Let me try it. It begins with a sense, with an inner narrative of who we are. When we know that we're divine, we're more likely to act in a noble fashion. When we believe, erroneously, that we are earthly, then we're more likely to make earthly choices that are less healthy. Chapter 1, chapter 2. It's like those books, Choose Your Own Adventure. You can choose to live chapter 1, you can choose to live chapter 2. The choice is clear. Either way, even if we go down the chapter 2 route, at least we should own it and stop the bleeding once it happens. All right, thank you for joining me today for a quicker, more fluid session of DPP, where we cover the first few chapters of Genesis. Tomorrow, Arab Shabbat, the goal will be to cover, I think we did the first three readings, the goal will be to get four, five, six, and seven. It's a tall order. It's a big Torah portion, this opening one. It's, it's a lot of verses. So once again tomorrow, and I, I, I ask for your understanding with this, we'll, we'll seek to cover some ground just to make sure we get in the whole portion before Shabbat. This week, I don't think we're going to have time to study the Haftorah. We'll have to study. We'll have to start that new thing, which I want to do, study the Haftorah for each week. We'll have to begin that next week with Noah. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure, Sarah. Pleasure. Mark, good to have you here. Sarah, Mark, Donna, Sandrine, Olia, Ray. It's good to have the crew back on our 5782 reunion tour. It's not a reunion tour. It's the tour marches on. <laughs> All right. We'll call ourselves the Rolling Stones. No. I have a uh, question. Yes, Sandrine. Um, is it, and, and maybe you commented it at the beginning, and I'm, I'm sorry if you did, but it says the Lord God. And, yes. You know, on pronouns in Hebrew, uh, if I'm not supposed to, but right. is is it only in uh, in that part or? Um. Let me look back. Hold on. Give me a sec. The Lord God, and we put both names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Lord God. Yeah. Hashem Elokim. It's interesting. In the beginning, it says Bereshit Bara Elokim. It only uses the name Elokim. Then later on in the narrative, it says Hashem Elohim. It adds the other name of God, which is actually the more popular name of God. <laughs> popular. Not that anyone took a poll here, but the, the one that's used more frequently is introduced um, a little bit further down in the narrative. Kabbalah speaks extensively about this. The name Hashem, I'm just going to call him Hashem and Elohim. The name Hashem is God's uh, Midas Harachimim, God's kindness. And, uh, and Elohim is God's... Um, uh, um, trait, uh, um, attribute of severity. So there's God as God's kindness and God's severity. So it takes severity to create the world. Why? Severity doesn't mean a harshness. It means like a limitation. So to go from infinite light to finite creation requires Elohim, Tzimtzum. Elohim is Tzimtzum, contraction. So that's why Elohim is used at the beginning of creation. And then as things kind of uh, play out, Hashem is introduced. As the Medrash says, it's like pouring hot water into a cup and then realizing that everything might break. And so then you add cold water to it and you mix it into warm water or into room temperature water 
and it's good. Cold water is not good. Hot water is not good. Either way is not uh, is not ideal. I forget which one is uh, is kindness and which one is severity, hot or cold. Either way, both extremes are not good. We have a blend. So Hashem Elokim, the Lord God, is is a way to use both names to indicate this blend of compassion and justice at the same time. That's Where a I? that's a one foot answer. Yeah. Hey Don. Here it is. Oh. This is sardonics. There you it's go. Sardonics, which was I call it the nice. ephah bracelet because sardonics was used the two stones. Yes. On the yep. shoulder, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. beautiful. And then it's the gold, and then underneath the gold is like, like a crystalline. There you have it. Yep. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's it. Now we just have to find the, the river with the gold, and and uh, right. that's it. Or, there's gold in Zalanica. You can do the gold. Product. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've we checked that out before. All right, I'll let everybody go. Have a wonderful day. Um, tomorrow, same bad time, same bad channel, DPP. Um, take a look at the website. We got some new stuff up. Join us for courses and classes that are starting in the next week or so uh, because there's a lot to learn, especially now that the holidays are over. We can get committed to Torah study and to personal growth, spiritual growth. So join me for all of the fun and excitement. All right. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you guys soon. Thank Take you. care, everybody. Pleasure, Thank pleasure. You.